We're continuing our study in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we looked at chapter 1 last week, which means we're going to delve into chapter 2 this week. Just to refresh your memory, King Saul had been murdered in a battle on Mount Gilboa. He had been in hot pursuit of David for no good reason and for many years. David had to run into Philistine territory to find refuge from irrational King Saul. But now that King Saul is deceased, David grieved his loss appropriately. Now he's wondering what to do with his life at this phase. Should he remain in Philistine territory or come home? And so that's where we pick up the action now, Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 where we read, then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord. Folks, that seems to be a pattern in his life. He had other patterns, not so good. Uh, David had a pattern of sexual misbehavior. Uh, That's just the way it is. But there were also virtuous patterns in his life, like this one, inquiring of God. He knew by nature he didn't have God's mind nor perspective, and therefore he sought it. And this is exactly what he says to the Lord, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? That's the southern part of Israel, Judah. Oh, good. Thanks, Aaron, for putting that up there. I appreciate it. I'm going to show you some things on the map. In the south is the territory Uh, given to the tribe of Judah, that's David's tribal affiliation. Therefore, he assumes if he is permitted by God to return to the land, uh, it will be in one of the cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, we read, go up. Yes, return. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron, Hebron. And so I want to point out to you where Hebron is on the maps. Um, you can see the Dead Sea, two major bodies of water in Israel. That little one up there is the Sea of Galilee in the north. And then if you follow this squiggly line, that's the Jordan River from north to south. It's a geographic barrier between modern-day Jordan and Syria to the right side and Israel to the left. The Jordan River Uh, pours down into the Sea of Galilee and flows south and empties out into the Dead Sea. So just to the left of the Dead Sea, you see Hebron. So it's in the tribe of Judah. Philistine territory would be further to the left or west, you can see it, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, this Philistine territory uh, is today Gaza, the Gaza Strip. If you've heard of Gaza... That's Philistine territory. In fact, the term Palestine or Palestinian derives from Philistine. So Hebron becomes the place where David returns to. This is before Jerusalem was a significant place. Hebron is approximately... 19 miles to the south of Jerusalem. So if you find Jerusalem over here, about 19 miles to the south is Hebron. David will be here in Hebron for seven and a half years. It will be the place of his capital until he besieges Jerusalem 
again about 19 miles to the north, seven and a half years from now, and then that will become the capital of Israel, which it is down to this very day. So that gives you just a bit of a geographic frame of reference. Yes, sir. Oh, no, that's a good question. Thanks, brother, for looking at it. Uh, Dan is mentioned, uh, uh, is indicated on this map two times. One of them you can see here on the Mediterranean coast, and the other is further north, where all the way up north. It's because this is the tribal territory given to the tribe of Dan by God. But they ran into Philistines there who had iron chariots, and they have never dealt with iron chariots before. And they decided it's too tough for us to take this land. So they went on an espionage mission north to spy out land that would be uh, easier for them to occupy. And they found this land all the way up north, and that's where the tribe of Dan settled. There's a debate about whether they were authorized to do that or whether or not they should have persisted here in the place where God sent them. I don't know the answer. I do know Dan became the most idolatrous tribe in Israel because when any pagan invader, invaders came into the land, they attacked from the north, and thus Dan was influenced. But anyway, that's a good observation. Thanks for looking at that. Okay, good. So that gives you an idea where Hebron was. Now, in Hebron, it's a significant place because the patriarchs and matriarchs of ancient Israel are all buried there. So Sarah was Abraham's wife. She died. He looked for a place to bury her. He paid an extraordinary sum of money to the Hittite king. And so the first real estate uh, Abraham possessed in the promised land was a place to bury his wife. It was kind of a symbol of permanence, meaning the Israelites are not going anywhere. This is their land. And so he bought this burial site in which Sarah was buried and in which he, uh, David, uh, excuse me, Abraham later comes to be buried. So Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah are all buried there. The only matriarch who is not buried there is Rachel. She died on the way to Bethlehem and is buried there in Bethlehem. And so they're buried in Hebron in a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs. So Aaron, if you don't mind putting up the next slide... Uh, and I appreciate Aaron back there doing all this uh, technical stuff. So in and under this building is the cave of the patriarchs. That's where Abraham and Sarah and all these people I mentioned are buried. That building is not modern. It's 2,000 years old. It was built by King Herod. We associate him with building projects in and around Jerusalem, but he also built this in the south. It's 2,000 years old. On one of our last trips, we had a chance to, uh, did we go, was it the last one? We went up on the roof <laughs> of this building. We don't usually go to Hebron for various reasons, but we went up on the roof of the building in a drone came by and took our picture up there. I thought it was going to shoot us, but so the picture was really much better. And <laughs> it's a very important site to Jews uh, for the reasons I mentioned, Cave of the Patriarchs, but also for Muslim people. And so this, uh, this is in the West Bank, Hebron, meaning the West 
bank of the Jordan River. And so it's a contested area. Uh, the Palestinian people are not happy with the Jewish presence. In fact, we were only able to go there because they assigned a fairly substantial IDF or Israeli army unit there to uh, make a way for groups like us to go into buildings like this. This building is shared. One entrance is for Jews and tourists, and the other is for Muslim people to try to keep them from killing each other. They have two separate entrances over there. It's a very pleasant experience. But anyway, uh, so that's where David um, set up his first... Uh, uh, capital. And so the text goes on in verse 2. So David went up there with his two wives. Ahinoam is one and Abigail is the other. If you count up the named wives of David in the Bible, he had eight, which is why I tried to make the case last week when those uh, insist David had a homosexual relationship with his close friend Jonathan. Um, I doubt it. He seemed to have an interest in the opposite sex, an interest that went out of bounds. He had eight named wives. Three seemed to be quite significant in his life because they're mentioned more than once. His first wife was Michael. She happens to be Saul's daughter. And then he had a, a second wife named Abigail. And then he had another wife, you know about her, named Bathsheba. We will be reading about Bathsheba later on in Second Samuel. The other five are mentioned just once. They don't seem to play as significant a role. This doesn't mean David only had eight wives. It means only eight are mentioned in the Bible. So this brings up an issue which we'll not cover in an exhaustive manner today. I'll just introduce it quickly and get out of the issue as quickly as possible. It's the issue of polygamy in the Bible. Frankly, it seems to be permitted by God at a certain time in ancient biblical days, not authorized by God. His plan is always one man being irreversibly bound to one woman. Woman, We see that model for marriage way back in Genesis, but at certain times it appears polygamy was permitted by God. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why, and so therefore we're left with the opportunity to guess. So this is a guess. In that day, an unmarried woman would not make it. How would she support herself? She was not eligible for schooling. There was no such thing as a woman having the audacity to independently work outside of the home. It just didn't work that way in ancient days. And so if a woman was unmarried, really, she only had two options to make it. One was to prostitute herself, and the other was to be enslaved. So some say God perhaps allowed polygamy as a means by which women would be provided for by a man who, though he had multiple wives, would be responsible for the economic well-being of all of his wives. Others say also God gave an early mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and polygamy would be a way by which that can be facilitated. One man could biologically produced through a number of women, multitudes of kids. So I don't understand at all, but that's an issue for uh, another day. Whenever we run out of easier topics, we'll get, we'll get to the tough topics. But after the rapture, Brother Chuck will address polygamy <laughs> here in the class. 
So anyway, now verse 3. David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household. They lived in the cities of Hebron. So what does that mean? Well, David had a bunch of people hanging out with him now. He had 600 men. Add their wives and children. We're in excess of 1,000. Can you imagine all of a sudden they show up in Hebron? Well, there's no housing for them. And so they, they settled in the environment environs of uh, in the villages and cities around the main city of Hebron and what's going to happen is the men who really suffered in battle with David are now going to reap the rewards of him coming into his kingship by the way that's the way it will be for us first we're in the battle it's kind of rough being alive today as a follower of the Lord Jesus but don't despair the best is yet to come One day, by virtue of our union with him, we will reap the benefits of knowing the king of kings, just as David, uh, um, David's followers did. So verse 4, then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, he's been designated as king of Israel, but that's, you'll see, an incremental thing. He doesn't come into it right away. For now, he's being anointed only as the king of one of the tribes, that is Judah, his own. David will be anointed king three times. The first was way back in 1 Samuel 16. We read there that God ordered Samuel, the then prophet, to anoint David with oil as the king of Israel. David then, way back, it's 15 years before what we're reading now, 15 years ago, David was anointed by Samuel as God's choice for the king of Israel. But 15 years have gone by. David, in that time, has had really nothing but time and trouble. Now he's anointed for the second time here in our text. And even here, he's not anointed as the king of the entirety of Israel, all the tribes. He's only anointed as king of the tribe of Judah. There will be a third anointing. I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm not sure. We'll get there eventually, where he will then be anointed as king of the totality of Israel. What's the point? Uh, Folks, uh, his first anointing was 15 years ago. He's going to spend seven and a half years here in Hebron after the second anointing, before the third anointing when he becomes king. If you do the math, it shows that for over 20 years, David waited for the fulfillment of God's promise. That seems to be a theme, not only in David's life, but in the lives of the men and women in Scripture. God makes a promise. He'll keep it, but in his time. Well, why does he make us wait? Why did he make David wait 21 years? Folks, waiting is apparently good for us. While we wait for the, we don't like it, but it's good for us. While we wait for the fulfillment of God's promise, things happen. One, we become more dependent on him. We hang on and we cling to him for blessing. Two, we hang out with one another, also waiting for his uh, promises to be fulfilled. And three, we develop a hopeful expectation, a stronger desire for God to fulfill his promise. Listen, you and I are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, and people have been waiting for it for a few thousand years. We're getting hungry for it. Aren't you hungry 
for the return of Christ. I mean, as you become, and I, increasingly immersed in an increasingly darkened world situation, don't we, the children of light, yearn for the return of Jesus, who is the light of the world? Well, why? Is God playing with us? Has he abandoned with us? No. He knows the waiting period is good for us, as it was for David. But there's something else that happens during the waiting period. Not only does God have blessing for us in the process, uh, Satan moves in for the kill. And we are much more susceptible to satanic temptation during the waiting period than we imagine. In fact, most of the major sins in the Bible have been committed by people while waiting on God to meet their needs. Why is that? Because Satan looks us in the eye and essentially says, you're being quite foolish waiting on God to meet your needs when, independent of him, you can meet your own needs. Why don't you get, this is a valid need you have, isn't it? He reminds us, and the answer is yes. Our needs are God-given legitimate needs, and then Satan can tempt us to meet those needs illegitimately. Almost every major sin in the Bible is an illustration of someone seeking to meet legitimate God-given needs illegitimately, whether it's sexual or in other kinds of ways. And folks, when that happens, we don't forfeit the love nor forgiveness of God, but we forfeit plenty. Opportunity, blessing, all the rest. So it's kind of a blessing to wait And it's also a time of great susceptibility to satanic temptation. And David, of course, succumbed to it at times, as you know of. Well, anyway, the men of Judah came and anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, they said to him, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Well, that was spoken of way back in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Uh, Saul, again, was killed on a place called Mount Gilboa. The Philistines came upon his body, and they decapitated it and those of his sons. They took their bodies and fastened them to a wall in a place called Beit Shan, a city called Beit Shan. The men of Jabesh Gilead were about 12 miles away on the east side of the Jordan River. They came at great personal risk to remove Saul's body from the wall at Beit Shan in order to give it a fit burial. David's men remind him of that. They say, David, uh, this is what the brave men of Jabesh Gilead did. And so David is about to do something on their behalf now. Before we look at that, can we take a look at the next slide, please, Aaron, and we'll see if if it's the right one. Yeah, I want to tell you a little bit about this. Now, those of you who've been to Israel, I think know what we're looking at right here. It's an ancient city called Scythopolis, Greco-Roman. Can you see on that street, mosaics? They're thousands of years old. They're intact down to this very day. And along that street to the left, those are shops. The area was covered by a roof. See those columns? A roof was on top of it, and this was an outside mall. You can walk up and down those streets, and to the left, there are entrances into little shops. In fact, some of the mosaics spell out right there on the pavement the name of the shopkeeper down to this very day and points out what, his, what he has to offer. Maybe he was a cobbler, and you know he's saying, my name is Ulysses. This is my cobbler shop. I make really great shoes out of the best leather. Stop in, you know, this kind of deal. That's what happened. This city was destroyed by an earthquake. But even before this particular city, uh, 
Beit Shan was destroyed. See that green mound in the distance? That is not natural. That's a tell, T-E-L, tell. It's a hill. And it came to pass um, as civilizations moved in layer upon layer. A previous civilization either moved out or was conquered, and the conquering civilization built on top. Why not? If it was good area, the next civilization wants to stay there, usually because it's near a water source. And so if you did a cross-section of that hill or that tell, you might see 20 or more ancient civilizations, one on top of the other. How can you determine that many? By pottery finds. There's different kinds of pottery in each era, and experts looking to the intricacy or form or coloration on the pottery, they can date it and determine how many civilizations are in that tell. I point it out because that tell, that big green hill, is ancient Beit Shan. It's in there that on the walls that Saul's body and that of his sons were fastened. It's to that place that the men of... Uh, Jabesh Gilead came under cover of darkness to remove the bodies of Saul and his sons. Now, David takes the first political action as newly um, appointed king of Judah. We read about it in verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And he said to them, may you be blessed of the Lord because you've shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. He is making a very sincere statement of condemnation, but he's also being a shrewd politician. And by the way, that's not sinful. To be smart is not a sin. And here's what he's saying. I am anointed by God to be the king of all the tribes, but right now it's only Judah. These people have shown loyalty to Saul. Saul has a relative, we'll read about him in a second, who's a, going to be a, a contender to the throne of Israel. David wants to win the support of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Remember, David's in the south, uh, where the tribe of Judah is, the men of Jabesh Gilead are further to the uh, further to the north, and so David wants to win their support. So he says, "It's a very subtle way. Don't despair, your lord, your friend. Your, you know, your king Saul is dead, but I've been appointed and anointed as king of Judah. It's a an invitation for them to support." Uh, him as king. It's the same approach the Lord Jesus uses. David didn't impose himself on people, neither does King Jesus. It's just an invitation to follow him as opposed to alternative kings. So that kind of is what's happening. And then uh, the text goes on in verse 8 to say, but Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. By the way, um, well, I'll tell you who these are. Abner was a military commander under Saul. He survived the battle on Mount Gilboa. Abner is also a relative of Saul. He's Saul's cousin. Abner does not want David to be king, therefore. He believes a relative of Saul, the deceased king, 
should come to the throne. The only surviving relative is this guy named Ish-bosheth. Well, if he's Saul's son, why is he alive? Why didn't he fight and die on Mount Gilboa? It's possible because he was so weak, he wasn't fit for battle. In fact, he's so weak, he's going to be a puppet king. Abner is a tough military general, and Abner has personal interests in this. And so he's going to prop up Ishbosheth. He's going to set him up in an alternative capital, you'll see, to uh, where David was. And he is the one Abner wants to be king because if Ishbosheth, who's kind of a uh, weak guy, if he's the king, then Abner can really chart the course of things. He'll call the shots from behind the scenes. By the way, if you're tired of all the political intrigue going on in the world today, it's not new. I'm a good night. This has been going on wherever you got sinful people. Anyway, that's who Abner is. Ish-bosheth means uh, man of shame. Well, that's a nice name for parents to give to a kid, huh? Well, it's not likely his parents did. See, his original name was man of Baal, Baal. Baal uh, simply means master or Lord. So his parents could have named him man of the Lord. Later, Baal, however, uh, came to be associated as the principal god of the Canaanites. And so it is thought that the name was changed because you don't want your kid to be named after some pagan god. And so it's thought not that his parents, but that some of the leaders in Israel, some of the priests were disgusted with this whole deal, and they named him Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. Anyway, he was not an electable guy, an attractive candidate, but Abner was muscling through all this. And so it says Abner, commander of Saul's army, took this kid, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. So, Aaron, if I could ask you to uh, show that map one more time. Uh, I have a hard time fi- finding Mahanaim. So, oh, there it is. I see it. Um, can you see, so you see the Jordan River running north-south, and you have the Dead Sea frame of reference. If you go up north of the Dead Sea and to the right or to the east, you see Mahanaim? That's where it was, east of the Jordan. Why are they setting up their capital there? Because it's plenty far away from the Philistines. Ishbosheth is not fit for war with the Philistines, for crying out loud. So Abner's going to set up the camp there at Mahanaim. Now I've got to tell you a couple things. Can, uh, Aaron, can you go show us the next slide, please? Thank you. This is wonderful. Aaron didn't know he was getting himself into this today. I didn't tell him in advance because he would have called in sick. So anyway, thank you for doing this. I'll tell you why this has meaning to me. That little uh, waterway is the Jabbok River. Jabbok River. One of the first times I was in Israel, we we went here. And I just went off alone to think about it. Jabbok River. Mahanaim is is right here by the Jabbok River. What's significant about it? It was mentioned first in Genesis 32. Jacob is returning home. Jacob, the deceiver, has, had deceived his brother Esau. He thinks Esau is real mad at him. He spends the whole night, Jacob does, on one side of the Jabbok River. He sends all of his people and stuff across the river to appease his brother Esau. Jacob is alone, the text says, and there he wrestles with an angel of the Lord. I think that was the Lord, Jesus. He wrestled with him. And... Uh, Jacob names the place Mahanaim. That's where we got the name. It means two camps. He knew of his camp, but he became aware of an angelic camp of Almighty God at the same place. So that's Mahanaim. I remember when one of the first times in Israel, I'm at this spot and I'm thinking, 
Oh, my goodness. That's where it happened. That's where Jacob wrestled with the angel. And, of course, years later, that's where we're reading about the incident now where Abner sets up Ish, both Sheth and his capital city. So verse 9, he made him king. Abner made Ishbosheth king over these places, Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, even over all Israel. Well, not exactly over all Israel. Wishful thinking. He had pockets of people who submitted to him. Jacob had the, I mean, David had the tribe of Judah. There was real dysfunction amongst the tribes. And so, we read on in verse, uh, uh, well, first of all, David, remember, was God's uh, appointed king, and um, Ish-bosheth was Abner's appointed king. God has his anointed king. By the way, Messiah means anointed one. Jesus is the father's anointed one, and there are pretenders to the throne. Which one are you going to follow? And you see, the people in this day were faced with the same deal. They're going to follow God's anointed or somebody else. So Ishbosheth, verse 10, Saul's son, he was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim, to Gibeon with the servants of Ish-bosheth, son of Saul. So, Aaron, could we look at the map again? I'll try to point out where Gibeon is. Gibeon is. So, on the map, Gibeon is, again, if you find the Dead Sea towards the top of it and go left, you'll see Gibeon. Gibeon is about five miles northwest of Jerusalem, uh, it is about 25 miles from Hebron, where David was, Hebron. So uh, Abner and Ishbosheth are up there in Mahanaim. They come down here to Gibeon. And David's representative go up from Hebron to Gibeon. Gibeon today is an Arab city called El-Jib. El-Jib. It's not a Hebrew name. It's an Arab name. Those of you who have not been to Israel may be surprised what do you mean, Arab? I thought this was like the Jewish state. Yeah, but it's a democracy, contrary to what you read on the news. One trip to Israel will inform you of what's really going on over there, for crying out loud. It is not an apartheid state. There's no Muslim, Arab-dominated country in the world where Jews have rights of any kind. But in Israel, Arabs do. And so this whole city, ancient Gibeon, is an Arab city. It's now called El-Jib. In fact, you can travel through Israel and see whole areas that are Arab cities with full rights and privileges as Israeli citizens because it's a true democracy. Um, go to Israel and just open your eyes instead of seeing things through news reports, and you'll see the accusations against Israel are, uh, are a sheer and utter nonsense, for crying out loud. And so You can see whole areas where you see these steeples um, those are mosques, and uh, that's where the call to prayer uh, to bow down to Mecca and worship um, Allah uh, are sounded now electronically. It used to be a live voice. A person would crawl up and with a, a loud voice, but now it's electronically. In fact, sometimes it's so loud, we sometimes spend time in Jerusalem, and they blast, the, the Muslim people blast the call to prayer so loudly, you can't even hear yourself talk 
Well, man, that doesn't look like an apartheid state to me. It looks like freedom of religion, even at a cost of uh, inconveniencing those who are not not Muslims. Anyway, El Jeeb is now modern-day Gibeon. That's where the two forces meet together. And I would like to, and so it says in verse 13, Joab, son of Zeruiah, so Joab is David's military commander. It says he's the son of this Zeruiah. That's a lady. That's David's half-sister, which makes Joab David's nephew. Okay? Abner, opposing David, is Saul's cousin. Joab is David's nephew. And it says Joab and the servants of David, they went out and met them, the other side, by the pool of Gibeon. A... uh, water reservoir of some sort and they sat down if you can envision this on one side of the pool and on the other side of the pool two opposing forces folks it's like a civil war north versus south the folks in the north are on one side of this pool of Gibeon and uh, David's people are on the south side of it by the way archaeologists have found this Aaron could you show us oh man that guy's on the ball look at that Scott did it I'm shocked. Man, Scott, you're like a person. How'd you get my notes? Oh, okay. Nice. So archaeologists found this. Listen, it's a water cistern, and it's about 80 feet deep, and it's about uh, 37 feet in diameter. There's about 79 steps that go down to it. This is carved out of the rock. It's not naturally occurring. People carve this out of it. On the bottom, there's water down to this very day. It is thought by archaeologists this is the pool at Gibeon that we are reading about here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And here's what happens at this pool. Verse 14, Abner, he takes the initiative. He proposes something to Joab. He says, let's let the young men arise and have a contest before us. Joab said, let them rise. Know what that means? Instead of all-out war, let's just select some choice fighters from both sides. Let them go at it, and whoever wins, wins the day. It's unusual, but it's kind of reminiscent of David and Goliath. Remember that? Philistines said, hey, send out one guy. We'll send out our guy. Whichever guy wins, that guy's people win the day. So that's kind of what's happening over here. And so uh, Joab apparently goes for it, verse 15, they arose and went over by count 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, that's one side, son of Saul, 12, the servants of David. You got 24 guys. They're going to go at it, 12 on each side. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hatsurim, which is in Gibeon. Crazy. Here's an artist's depiction of what perhaps went on. They grab the, the, the pairs of 12 go after each other, and you grab each other on the head, and then you stab each other. They, and so each couplet die at the same time. And so it was called, whatever it says here, Helkat Hatsurim, which means field of daggers or field of swords. But this did not end the conflict. It actually exacerbated it. Abner is uh, outnumbered and... So here's what happens in verse 17. That day the battle was severe. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so the three sons of Zeruiah, three, this lady produced three boys, 
Joab, we mentioned, is one, and then he had brothers, Abishai and Asahel. So those are all David's nephews. But one of them, Asahel, we're told, was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles, in the field, meaning he could run. He was fast. He was just real. He was young, and he was really, really fast. Asahel, fast, but not so smart, gets the idea, I'm going to go after Abner the commander of the opposing troops. If I nail Abner, David will be free, you know, to be king of uh, all of these tribes. This will end the conflict. So he's in hot pursuit of Abner. Verse 19, Asahel pursued Abner and didn't turn to the right or to the left. In other words, his eyes were focused on Abner who had a lead, but because this guy is fast, he's catching up on him. And Abner sees this. He looks behind And he says, is that you, Asahel? And he said, it's I, all right. And Abner said to him, turn to your right or left. Take hold of one of the young men for yourself. Take for yourself the spoil. Look at it, he says. If you're hungry for battle and victory, then why don't you just leave me alone? Why? Because he's a seasoned veteran, man. This guy has been in many wars. He's probably well decked out with weaponry that Asahel... Stupid young kid didn't bring with him. And so uh, Abner is saying, why don't you stop and deal with someone your age, you know, and then you can go back, take his weaponry and brag about it. You know, and part of it is Abner doesn't want to kill this young stupid kid. Why? Because his brother Joab will be mad and things will get worse. So Abner says to him, why don't you get someone else? But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Verse 22, Abner repeated again to him. Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? It's a sure thing. And this, this young kid, he's no match for Abner. How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? That's what Abner says. However, he, Asahel, refused uh, to turn aside. And therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. So they carry spears. And, you know, you got the sharpened end by which you pierce through people. But the butt end of the spear was also somewhat sharpened so that you could put it in the ground and it could stand up and you can grab it real quick. Well, Asahel is so fast, all Abner had to do is slow down even more, stop, and hold his sword like this, and Asahel ran right into it, and that thing just pierced him right through, went right through him. In fact, it was so grotesque the text says when people came upon Asahel, they just paused. They just, I mean, they saw this young kid. He's just been pierced through, and they paused. They just stand still over his body. So verse 24, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. See, those are his brothers. The dead kid's brothers are pursuing Abner. And when the sun was going down, it's nighttime, they came to the hill of Amah. We don't know exactly where it is. It's an elevated area near Gibeon which is in front of Gia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, became one band. They stood on top of a certain hill. Abner called across to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Abner is proposing a cessation of hostilities. Now, one of the reasons I think he's motivated to do so is that he's losing. It's real easy for you to want peace when you're, 
you know, about ready to be defeated. But it's a civil war, as I mentioned. Again, it's north versus south. Israelite is killing Israelite. Abner is trying to reason with Joab and saying, come on, how long are we going to, how long are we going to do this stuff? So Joab goes for it, verse 27. He says, as God lives, if you hadn't spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. Now, that can mean one of two things. Joab said to Abner, number one, if you didn't open up your big mouth at, at the pool of Gibeon to begin with and propose all this stuff, we wouldn't be in this mess. That's one possibility. The other is, if you didn't pro- open up your mouth and propose peace, now there would be no peace. So you can put whatever construction you want on it. Now, verse 28, Joab blew the trumpet. Have you heard of the word shofar? Have you seen these? They're ram's horns. You blow these things. They're used for a lot of reasons. One is to give military signals. So Joab, blow, he doesn't actually blow it. You have a trumpet blower because it takes some skill to blow this thing. And, man, it can carry across a valley and, you know, from hill to hill. And, and that means Joab was telling his troops, stop fighting. So uh, he blows the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah, it's a desert area, all that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walking all morning, and came to Mahanaim. So Abner and the boys are going from this area. They're going to go north, and they're going to head back up to Mahanaim. Do you think we can see the map, Aaron, I promise, or Scott, one last time? Okay, thanks, guys. So uh, Abner and the boys are going from approximately this area, Gibeon, and they're going to go this way up to Mahanaim. It's 36 miles. It's uh, hot. It's desert. They're tired. It's a rough march, but they're essentially glad they're alive. They go that way. And then you'll see in just a second, Joab and the boys go also from this area. They go south down here to Hebron. First, they'll stop off at Bethlehem. Take a look at where Bethlehem is, because I'm going to mention something to you about it in just a second. Man, I'm getting my exercise today. Look at this. So, so the text goes on, verse 30. Then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. In other words, David's forces lost 20 men, 20. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that 360 died. 20 verses 360. We call that a rout. You know what that is? That's a sign of things to come. David is, in fact, going to come into the throne as king of the entirety of Israel. And uh, people should be getting the message now, but they seem not to be getting the message just yet incrementally, David will come to be king. Incrementally, Jesus will be recognized as king. Well, anyway, verse 32, last verse, they took up Asahel, remember, the young, young soldier who was pierced through. They, they took his body and they buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem. So they went from the area of Gibeon, they went to Bethlehem, they buried this boy first, and then they went further south to Hebron. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. So lots of conclusions 
we could arrive at from this text, just if I could just offer one. As with King David, so with David's greater ancestor uh, or son, uh, King Jesus. Uh, the father uh, designated him as the anointed one, King of kings and Lord of lords. But only a minority of the world's population acknowledged that we are some. But we are not many. Even through the millennia, it's always been a relatively small percentage of the world's population who have recognized God's choice of his anointed king, King Jesus. Even though King Jesus, like David, imposed himself on nobody, he woos people, he offers himself to them, still people are free to choose an alternative king rather than God's anointed, they can choose somebody else, just as people in the text did. Just as David ultimately will come to be king of Israel, as we will see, so too will the Lord Jesus. Now, we've not really seen him acknowledged as such today. In fact, people make fun of him, ignore him, bring shame upon his name, show disrespect to him, and all the rest. But I'm telling you, folks, incrementally, one step at a time, you will see King Jesus will come in uh, to his throne as well. Because the Bible tells us in that day and uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Once again, we're in a waiting period. It's uncomfortable for us. It's easier for us to go to war for Jesus. But the toughest Christian discipline is not warring for Christ. It's waiting on Christ. That's the toughest Christian discipline. And that's ours right now. While we wait, we don't just sit around passively. We're actively engaged in doing the work our king wants us to do. And it's important for us to stay busy because if we are just passively waiting, we're patsies for the evil one. We're going to get into trouble. And I'm noticing in our day a lot of us are really falling, particularly into sexual immorality. It could be anyone here. It could be anyone here. Be careful during the waiting period. Jesus is on the horizon. We don't know when he's going to come. Be careful of date setters. We know of the reality of the return of Christ. We don't know specifically of the date. Don't buy books that intrigue you with complicated formulaic conclusions about his return. The Bible tells us we don't know, not even the son, when he's going to return. Live with the reality of his return, but we don't know the precise time. That wouldn't be helpful to us. If we knew of his precise time, uh, we wouldn't be developing our faith muscles now. We're exercising our faith muscles right now. But there will be a day when God's anointed one, the Messiah, will be recognized by everybody as King of kings and Lord of lords. Far better to recognize him as such now uh, than later when it's too late to benefit from being in union with his kingdom. Far better to acknowledge him now and submit to him as king of kings and lord of lords. But folks, I want to tell you, the best is yet to come. I think things are going to get worse, significantly worse, perhaps even in our day, should the Lord tarry. But even after the worst that could come in this increasingly ungodly world, please do not despair. The Lord Jesus will be on uh, the throne. And you and I as his subjects will rejoice forevermore because we made the right choice. We did not choose someone like Ish-bosheth, some propped up weak somebody as Satan props up uh, those he wants us to bow down before today. No, we bowed down in our hearts before the right one, God's choice, his anointed king, King Jesus. I'm telling you, all of that, our faith will come to fruition and be proven not to be in vain at all. So be careful. Don't cave in in this day when people 
motivated by Satan are telling us, where is this God you're, you're, you're staking your internal life on, you're waiting for? Where is he? Why does he tarry? Perhaps he will not come. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's what Satan does. Jesus is on the horizon, but the timing of the fulfillment of all we've read about his second coming is entirely up to him. Until then, I think it's important for us to hang out together. I've said this a million times. Church is a very frustrating reality. Church is. Why? Because we're all together and we get on each other oftentimes. Let's just face it. You know, uh, we disturb each other. We frustrate each other. We irritate one another. That's just the way it is. And sometimes we make the choice to bail out of church. I'm telling you, that means you'll be waiting alone and you'll get picked off by the evil one who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I determined a long time ago, I don't have to like the people I go to church with. If I happen to like one or two, that's just icing on the cake. But, but it's not required at all. It's necessary that I hang out with like-minded people because we can help each other up while we wait for the return of our king. Don't bail out. Hang in there. This thing, you know, people say, well, I can have Christ without going to church. Yeah, but not for too long. You're, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get picked off. You're going to, I mean, some, on some days when the last thing in the world I want to do is come to church, I will, by sheer force of will, I'll hear a song. Man, and it's like just what I needed to hear. Or I'll get a hug, and it's just like what I needed. Or I'll hear a prayer. And oh, my goodness. That is exactly what I needed to hear voiced. Or I'll hear the word of God, something in the word of God. And I'll say, oh, my goodness, that is for me on that day. That's how God uses the, the church. So don't make church an option. It's mandatory while we wait for the return of our king. Lord Jesus, we wait longingly, somewhat patiently, surely longingly. Thank you for bringing us all together. We wait together, not alone, in hopeful expectation of your return in your time. We really look forward to the time when no one needs any longer to be persuaded of who you are. The entirety of the human race will acknowledge you, some with joy, others with fear. Oh, God, we are so grateful for those here who've been able by choice, not compulsion, to accept you as the Father's anointed, submitting to you now, therefore having the hopeful expectation of your return. Nothing to fear. Absolutely not. We look forward with great expectation to your return when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you, Lord Jesus, you and you alone are Lord. We look forward to that day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. We made it through an entire chapter once again. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.